two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Big technology firms have been in the crosshairs recently. There is a growing sense that these firms may have become too powerful and influential, and that they are now distorting the U.S. economy, the political process, and even people's day-to-day lives. We've heard calls to break up some of the biggest tech firms, proposals to create new regulatory frameworks, including proposals from some of the most prominent technology companies themselves. And we've even seen the beginnings of U.S. government action, like the creation of a new FTC task force on competition in technology. I'm Jeff Melley, the Global Head of Research at Barclays. In this episode of The Flip Side, we're going to discuss if the critiques of these companies have merit. Joining me today is Jim Martin from our U.S. credit strategy team. Thanks for joining me, Jim. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And I'll tell you right now, I tend to agree with some of the concerns about big tech. Okay, well, I think some of these concerns are actually overblown. But before we get started, I think we should be clear about specifically which issues we're focused on. That's a good point. Some of the criticism about big tech is more cultural, like how much privacy consumers should expect in their online activity, or what role social media companies should play in protecting free speech. And we are not going to address those. We're going to talk about whether or not these companies have accumulated market power. That means that they have the ability to distort markets in their favor and increase profitability, either at the expense of their customers or their competitors. In the last episode of The Flip Side, We discussed evidence that, in aggregate, the level of competition in the U.S. economy has fallen. In this episode, we're going to focus specifically on some sectors that are most often associated with having large, dominant firms. Yeah, and by now we've both used the term big tech, but the way that phrase is used doesn't really line up with the actual sectors those companies compete in, nor with how investors look at these companies. I mean, take Fang, for example. This is Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Netflix, and Google, that might be shorthand for big tech, but you've really got a hardware company, a retailer, and three media companies. And even within that group, there's a lot of overlap, like Amazon and Netflix competing on streaming services, and Google and Apple both have cloud competing businesses. Yeah, and that highlights how difficult it is to pinpoint which companies operate in which sectors, and it makes analyzing the power of any one specific company very difficult. I think it's better to pick a specific sector and look for the symptoms of low competition. In the last episode of The Flip Side, we talked about low labor share, low business dynamism, and low investment as three main characteristics of industries characterized by low competition. We don't have to precisely identify every company in the industry. Any of the companies that we exclude will still affect the behavior of the companies that we do include. So in this episode, we're going to focus on two of the sectors that are most affected by big technology, That's retail and media. Sure. I mean, not only are some of the biggest tech companies active in those sectors, but both of those sectors are in the middle of major disruptions. In retail, e-commerce continues to gain share. Online sales growth has been more than 10% higher than overall retail sales growth for a few years now. In media, there are new channels like social media, but also new entrants like Netflix and Hulu that are disrupting traditional business models and accumulating market share. Also, along those lines, both sectors have seen concentration increase. A smaller number of firms have been generating a larger portion of total revenue. Retail concentration really accelerated starting in 2014 as e-commerce growth really took off, while media concentration has been increasing steadily over the past two decades. 
While concentration is often used as a measure of competition, including by antitrust authorities like the DOJ, we think it's flawed. First, it's hard to measure. Second, as we discussed in the last episode, elevated concentration could actually be a sign of heightened competition when only the most efficient firms can survive. That's why we focus on the symptoms of low competition, like depressed business dynamism and low investment, to construct the Barclays Competitiveness Indicator, or BCI. By retail, we mean companies that sell products to consumers. Companies like Amazon, certainly, but also more traditional retailers like uh, Macy's or The Gap or Target. Now, our metrics show that competition in retail is quite healthy. The BCI has not declined since 2000, despite the rise of e-commerce. When we look at each of the components, none of labor share, business dynamism, or investment appears to be falling in retail. That's despite the rise in concentration that you mentioned. And it's the reason why I'm not worried that the competitive dynamics in retail are being depressed by the emergence of some of these really big firms. Jeff, I want to stop you right there. I couldn't help but notice when you were listing retailers, you didn't mention Walmart. Now, I know technically Walmart's classified as a grocer because that's where it gets most of its revenue, but it's still a massive retailer. To me, this highlights just how difficult it is to accurately capture any measure of competition. When I add Walmart to the retail cohort, the Hervendahl Index, which is the standard measure of concentration you discussed in the previous flip side, doubles. And that stands out to me as a, a possible weakness in, in this analysis. Well, let's be clear. It is the case that the concentration numbers change dramatically if you include Walmart as a retailer. But we measure competition using our BCI. And when we include Walmart manually in that measure, it does not change the numbers. In fact, the numbers are almost identical. We were capturing the effect of Walmart on the rest of retail already. That gives me a lot more confidence that our measure is robust and better designed than simply using concentration. Yeah, I, I take your point. I just I still struggle to see how retail competition is able to remain so strong, despite the fact that a small number of e-commerce giants are capturing more and more market share. Well, Jim, maybe it's the case that e-commerce is just naturally more contestable. So price comparisons are just a few clicks away. You have to go from one website to another. You don't have to get in your car and drive to a new store and find the exact product. Actually, this is a great example of the winner-take-all hypothesis that I spoke about in the last episode. Only the most efficient firms survive, but they're not able to extract excessive profits because they have to continually invest and innovate to maintain their position. So in retail, consumers benefit from lower prices, first of all, but also from things like free delivery, which is a form of a better service. And it forces firms to optimize their supply chains and their logistics. And if they can't compete on those price terms and deliver the, 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 most, the lowest prices to consumers, then they cede share to the most efficient firms. Okay, but let's come at this from a different angle. Maybe the real threat to retail competition is vertical integration, where retail giants use their platforms and data advantages to develop and promote their own brands. Certainly, private label products, which are retailers' proprietary brands, are nothing new, but there are claims that the data and scale of the largest e-commerce platforms provide an advantage that can impair competition. Now, that might not show up in our numbers, and it might never show up in the form of higher prices. But what if entrepreneurs are discouraged and don't create new products because the big platforms just take their best ideas? Doesn't that hurt consumers, too, in the form of lack of choice or less innovation? Well, currently, the Department of Justice and other regulators primarily use a price lens when thinking about competitive threats. That's really because price is easy to measure. But you're talking about 
a broader definition of consumer welfare, one that includes not just the price you're paying, but consumer choice and the amount of innovation that happens. Exactly. And to me, it's not clear that our numbers would catch that trend. Well, I do think that the scenario you laid out would be a concern, but I actually see some current trends that are going in the opposite direction. So our analysts actually believe that the barriers to entry in retail are going down. So barriers to entry are impediments to competition. It means incumbents are less worried about new competitors, so they have less incentive to invest and keep prices low because the new competitors can't enter the market because it's too expensive to do so. But there are some developments out there, namely in things like social media, that may actually be reducing the barriers to entry in retail. So let's take Kylie Cosmetics as an example of that. Kylie Jenner, who's the founder of that company, used her social media platform and presence to launch and market this new brand. At first, she went direct to customers. Then eventually, she developed the in-store presence. At this point, the revenues for that company are close to $400 million a year. That's all at the expense of incumbents like Maybelline and Revlon. So we have a situation with new entrants taking share from incumbents. That's the hallmark of a competitive industry. So despite the bad rap that some of these big e-commerce giants get on this front, it's interesting that we're not just seeing no evidence of anti-competitive behavior, we're actually seeing the opposite. Jeff, I've, I've got to give you credit for working a Kardashian reference into this discussion, but it's actually a good segue into media. And when we talk about media, we're really talking about content platforms and content generators or companies that get their revenues through selling ads or subscriptions. So you have traditional media companies like Disney or CBS, but also new players like Netflix and Facebook or Google. So social media might be good for retail competition, but the BCI metric shows that competition in media has declined over the past few decades. And that came from all three inputs. Investment, dynamism, and labor share have all fallen. Yeah, Jim, that result is a bit confusing to me. I think media looks like what's happening in cosmetics. You've got Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu all challenging the incumbent content providers. They've clearly shaken up how content gets created and distributed. In fact, that might be the motivation behind the recent merger between AT&T and Time Warner, where content providers feel like they need to be paired with a distribution service like streaming in order to remain competitive. It's not just in terms of platforms that we're seeing competition. The choice of content is almost overwhelming. So you have the number and variety of shows, I think also shows a very healthy competitive dynamic. Jeff, I, uh, I hate to say this, but that might be more a reflection of your advanced, let's say, uh, stature or, or station in life. Your examples are all more traditional media sources. Digital media, and when I say digital, I'm really talking search like Google and social media like Facebook, is a growing portion of the revenue pie for the whole media sector. Traditional media that you were talking about is shrinking. And the competitive dynamics in digital look a lot different. In digital, the biggest tech firms face the fewest competitors and hold much more sway in the market. The BCI allows us to net off what might be stable or even increasing competition in the shrinking traditional media segments with decreasing competition in digital. All right. Well, first of all, Jim, I don't really appreciate the crack about my age. Second of all, I would say that uh, it is admittedly the case that digital media appears to be dominated by a few firms. But I thought we weren't supposed to rely on that. We're supposed to rely on the symptoms of low competition, one of which is investment. And digital media companies are some of the biggest investors out there. So, for example, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, is the single biggest investor of any U.S. company. Facebook is the third biggest investor. 
Isn't there something ironic about blaming a lack of investment and innovation in the U.S. economy on the companies that actually do the most R&D? Yeah, those companies do invest a lot, but focusing on the absolute amount of investment for a handful of firms is misleading. Given how large these companies are, they should be investing the most. We're talking about some of the most valuable companies in the world, Jeff. An individual company could be investing just enough to inhibit competition. So we should focus on overall investment of the entire sector. At that level, investment is meaningfully lower than we would expect from such a dynamic space, despite being high in absolute terms. I'm fairly confident we can take our results in the media space at face value, which implies that maybe some of the criticisms of the competitive impact of those companies do have merit. So assuming you agree with me on that, and you definitely should, uh, what does this all mean for investors? So first of all, it's certainly the case that any one individual company that comes into the crosshairs of antitrust authorities or other regulators is going to feel the implications. But when we think at a sector level, I'd argue that our results indicate that retail equity valuations are not being bolstered by an accumulation of market power. So first, there may not be any uh, any reasons for antitrust authorities to look carefully at that space. But even if they did, we don't really see necessarily equity market implications for the sector as a whole because we don't think there's actually a problem to solve. We don't think those equity prices are being supported by market power. Sure. And maybe in media, uh, there's more of a binary risk for equity investors where right now, as things are, these uh, media giants have are fairly well protected uh, even in the event of a downturn, due to their market power. However, if they do fall into the crosshairs of a regulator, uh, there might be you know, a significant downside for equity investors. However, I'm a little skeptical of the power that any sort of regulation could have over these companies, simply because uh, no matter what they do, I'm never going to use more than one search engine, and I'm ne- I certainly don't need another social media platform in my life. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about the connections we were talking about between developments in social media and how those could be pro-competitive in retail, even if potentially anti-competitive within the media space itself. It does show that these companies are are very large, have influence over lots of different parts of the economy, and it's not clear that specifically targeting individual companies is the best regulatory approach. That could have all sorts of unintended consequences, like going after social media companies, meaning less competition in retail, for example. Um, And that's just one of what could be many of these unintended consequences. I think a better approach would be to try to create a more pro-competitive playing field a level playing field for other competitors to be able to enter the space rather than trying to target some of the specific big dominant firms. Sure. So pro-competitive legislation sounds like a good idea, but in practice, what I tend to see is a bunch of complicated rules that end up increasing barriers to entry and protecting incumbents. Well, I share that concern. I do think there are some examples out there of actual pro-competitive policies. So, for example, there are some new rules in financial services in Europe that allow consumers to port their financial data from one bank to another in order to create more competition for lending. In principle, you could do something similar with your online activity. You don't have to use three different search engines. Instead, you could have access to your search history, which you could make available to other competitors in the media landscape. Well, I think we've only begun to see the proposals along these lines, and there'll be a lot more on this topic to talk about in the future. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can access our latest thoughts on retail and media in Retail and Media, Assessing the Elephants in the Room, available on Barclays Live. Everyone can access our latest impact series 
Increasing Corporate Concentration and the Influence of Market Power. Available on Barclays.com slash IB. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at Barclays.com slash IB.